Creativity is an extension of the human experience. This wild, boundless seascape has been our anchor for our friendship and our sanity. This podcast is an exploration between close friends of storytelling and artistic expression. In this chapter, we're joined by Vanessa Wood, herbalist, educator, and artist, to talk about a myth that has indelibly influenced us since the day we watched it, The Dark Crystal. I also want to point out that Vanessa is a dog mom. And she is the mom to two really beautiful dogs, Yukina and Alosa. Um, so the Dark Crystal's 40th anniversary happened recently. And Vanessa and I were lucky enough to see it in the theater again at the same time in different places. So together, we're going to share our personal reckonings in this podcast, explore what this movie means to us and our creative intellectual worlds. I'm happy to be here with you. Welcome. Yay. So in our previous episode, Rudo and I were talking about the Banshees of Inishirin, and it was definitely in the same vein as this modern myth creation. Um, The premise of The Dark Crystal, if you haven't seen it, um, is a young Gelfling named Jen is sent by his dying master to find a crystal shard, which is being held by the wise witch Ogra. Now, Now Jen must journey far and wide to figure and figure out the purpose of the shard. He has to work quickly to save his world from the Skeksis' wrath. And it was created by Jim Henson and Frank Oz in 1982. Mm. And we're going we're gonna to start by sharing our first experience um, and reaction to the movie when we first saw it. Yeah. Why don't you go first, Vanessa? Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> well, um, unlike you both, I saw The Dark Crystal as a young adult, which is kind of amazing because I grew up on watching the labyrinth as a pretty young kid. I'm, I was born mm-hmm. the year before the dark crystal came out and I don't know how I missed it, but <laughs> I, I was pretty um, struck by Brian Froud's, you know, world and, and the magic of the labyrinth, both in terms of it being beautiful and mysterious and um, surprising. You never knew what was going to happen in the labyrinth and also kind of like a little bit scary and, and, and dark and horrifying sometimes. Um, I remember those those fire dancers and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. so yes. When I first saw The Dark Crystal, um, actually, like, reflecting now, I think a lot of the things that stuck out to me then when I was young, like, in, in my early 20s, probably, are kind of the same things that I notice the most about it now, which are just the the absolute natural beauty and the way that there is the this ecosystem Mm. where you have all these different plants that work together and i think that is felt so viscerally when you watch it Mm. um totally little creatures flitting around and this entire world is has so much detail and like obviously many food chains that are have been considered um and then the, you know, I, I can think about the myth in a more, I guess, a way that relates to other myths more now. Um, mm. But even at the time, I think that what really st- stuck out to me was that sort of hero's journey of of trying to heal the world. Um, mm-hmm. Like one person, there's a, you know. A chosen one. A chosen one, a... Um, you know, the 
um, what is it called when you, the, when it's predicted that something will happen. I can't think of the word. Prophecy. The prophecy. Thank you. There's prophecy and there's hero. He doesn't really know what to do and ends up meeting people to help him. Um, And, and what I think the Skeksis and like, to me, that always represented the sort of out of touch elite in power who are kind of greedy and wanting more power and using resources. And I was always really moved by the, the whole, dynamic with the podlings and what they represent too. So I definitely want to look at that at some point. And then just the kind of the, some of the gender dynamics with uh, Jen and Kira and also Agra. And and, um, I'm also kind of always trying to figure out what the, what the split between the Skeksis and the mystics is like where, Cool. Where is that line? Oh. You know. Awesome. Oh, I have so many thoughts that are gonna. <laughs> I was getting emotional. Ping pong back and talk about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I just I think it's fitting for me just to share that right after Vanessa and I went to the theater and saw it, which was like a moving thing to do. We were in two different states. We were watching it at the same time because they released it a limited amount of times in the theater, so everyone across the country could see it at the same time, like a few times in a week. And so one of the first things we talked about was that ecosystem because there's this panning shot and it's really, really slow. And anyone who's seen it knows what I'm talking about. It's the slow panning and it's the time when the artists are really showing you the creatures. It's through like the swamp and you see all the creatures and, but you hear them and you see them and the texture. And I didn't, I'm I'm jumping, I'm not going to go ahead, but there's a way they filmed it on purpose and I didn't realize that, but it works because when you look at it a second time, there's so much more to see. Every time you watch it, there's something else to see. And it's all made by humans, like digging deep. And yeah. So, um, since I just jumped in, do you mind if I share my introduction to it? Talking back to baby pixie time. Baby pixie time. So I remember it being on, I think it was an accident that I saw it or maybe not, but like my grandfather probably was the reason because in retrospect, my grandfather would record anything that came on either. I don't know if he knew it was because he thought it was interesting or whatever, but he'd record stuff for us on VHS. So we had the dark crystal on VHS. It could have been my dad too. I don't know. And I, um, I just remember watching it and again, being simultaneously enthralled and terrified, but still watching it a lot. Like I'd have to ask to watch TV. I couldn't just watch it. So I must've asked to watch it multiple times, knowing I'd feel very uncomfortable um, and I remember being fairly traumatized by the podlings being tortured. Mm. Um, and, but I couldn't look away because there was those mythological themes that were probably pulling me in, but I don't think I had any awareness of it at that time. It was all very just instinctual for me, I think. And then I think when I, it was just a part of me without even realizing it. Um, and then when I met, my close friends that I'm friends with now, Rudo being one of them in college, and you you realize you both saw it as a child and you kind of understood. Mm. That took it to another level somewhere in my mind. And then in my adult years, I really started revisiting it. And it became, and then they made the prequel and I rewatched that and I rewatched the movie. And then all of a sudden, all of these deeper pieces started coming into place. And um, it's just taken on again and again, something new every time. Every time I revisit it, there's another thing I realize, another character. I feel more deeply about it. And it is probably one of my core stories of my life that's guided me and still does. So 
that's my introduction to it. Yeah. So what Caitlin Gimmel talks about, the um, unearthing of your personal stories. Yes. Like all of yep. a sudden you're like, oh, this, yes. this subterranean nuance has been <laughs> nourishing who I am this whole time. Yeah, I have to link to her too. <laughs> yeah, when I I was allowed very few pieces of media um, when I was little. My parents were very particular about how much TV I was allowed to watch and what I would watch. And so Henson, uh, anything by Henson, I was allowed to watch. Me too. And I think the, if I try to think back and not project what I know now, the thing that I know for sure, for sure was one of the strongest um, hooks for me was the the coming together of the Uru and the Skeksis because yes, the same. these kind of like light beings. I just remember being um, almost like propelled out of my body when I saw those um, light projections. I think both like aesthetically, like artistically, I was like, but how? But then also just the concept of them being unified and becoming these something more than than they were individually and uh, I'm like a very vivid dreamer like a lucid dreamer and I've been to weird places in my dreams and I've been <laughs> to a, like a heaven-like scape where those light beings were like in my head they were called angels and that's exactly what they looked like and I was like oh cool Henson designed heaven cool right <laughs> Like and yeah. as the dream was happening, it was a very intense dream. But as it was happening, I was like, oh, hi, Jim Henson Creations. <laughs> <laughs> so they I, made a huge impact on me. I loved them, too. I can relate to that. Yeah. And and just all, all the things that you all have said were very mm -hmm. deeply grooved into me as well. I mean, we are um, birds of a feather. So that's why we've come together. And that feels like the good premise for us to delve. <laughs> so that's where we all come together. Um, did. And so I think maybe a good place to start is how this myth has been received in the general public and in the world. Like right. um, we just had the re-upping, like the reinvigoration of it with the Netflix prequel, which we are not going to talk about, but we're going to mention because I think it did re-energize us probably without Absolutely. us even realizing it because we were all watching it and talking about it in different times over the last few years and well and also this is right the before the pandemic of, hit right yeah and it's it's the product of the generation that was raised by the dark crystal as yes. well like the creators and the creative yeah. team and the voice actors everyone were oh. like no i had to be a part of this because yeah. Of, mm -hmm. yeah it was it was a uniting and i really do think i remember i watched it with dave in brooklyn a few weeks before the first wave of COVID hit. It's very like, oh. I think it brought things in for me in a way that I don't even know if I can talk about yet, but it, it happened at a good time. And then it opened up the world again. And the amount of like effort and love that was put into that show was the same as the movie. And a yeah. lot of times you see that not happening. So, um, do you yeah, think so how, that it was received as like, you know how like the original receiving was complex. Like it didn't, um, the assumption was that it wasn't going to do well in the box office. Do you think that the same thing happened to the Netflix series? Did it, was it as well received, do you think, as it could have been? Or what like do you that, think, Vanessa? Yeah. I, I don't know 
what the demographics or the numbers are, but I do have the sense that there's something tragic to me about the place where it was left off, the amount of effort and love put into it. Um, the amount of, I think a lot of people that watched it loved it. And it just, um, obviously something was, some numbers weren't high enough. And it, it just gets me thinking about the lack of patience or the pace of our mm. culture and our entertainment industry, mm. where I wonder if, you know, sometimes it takes a little longer for things to spread by word of mouth and people to get into it. Cause I, I didn't watch it right when it came out. And by the time I watched mm-hmm. it, they had already decided not to make more, I guess. And so I wonder how many people like me would have gotten around to it and what the audience ship could have been. But there's this expectation that things just be like shiny and popular and everybody jump on it right away at the same time. And I just don't think that's how people are more likely to find something like this. That's, you know, fully agree. Yeah. Fully agree. And what kept resonating, as you said that, Vanessa, was stories take time to tell and require patience. And something like The Dark Crystal or Labyrinth or NeverEnding Story or those puppet movies we watched as kids, they take longer because they're done a different way. And like, you know, everything is flashy now. And so it might not have been as well received either because maybe these new generations didn't weren't able to wait through what was a little bit of maybe a longer wait time or it's a little more, it's a little different to watch. It doesn't give you all the answers. It's not shiny. It's not Disney. It's not Pixar. And I I think both of those things, the patience of waiting for something to be made or letting people watch it and seeing what they think and people actually watching it and not having patience to watch it. I wonder if that was what happened when it initially was released in 82. And I, I just wanted to add one one thing, which is that I mm-hmm. guess I want to appreciate the creators of the more modern Dark Crystal the series in that they didn't, I don't think that they changed the pace a lot, even though it came so much later. They weren't like, um, let's make it flashy and super edited. Like that didn't happen. There was. Yeah, they there wanted it frame by frame to feel exactly mm-hmm. the same. And also, quick little juicy tidbit for those that are um, big time Labyrinth fans. The um, there's this team of screenwriters that came together and said, we want to pitch to the Henson Company a reboot or like a sequel to The Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And so these two really, really epic screenwriters went to the Henson Company and said, this is our idea. And they said, interesting, because we just signed a deal with Netflix to create a prequel to The Dark Crystal. So would you like to pivot and pitch us that? <laughs> So the exact same time oh, wow. this energy was being like reimagined or reinvigorated and it happened like simultaneously. I love that. I love the collective consciousness yeah. because we know these things like crop up um, simultaneously for a reason. So the fact that it was just um, this kind of intuitive, impulsive moment where everyone was saying, are we ready? And the fact. And you're so right. Like Vanessa, Pixie, you both were so right in terms of like the different storytelling tactics of this because it's not just that it's shiny and fast paced. It's also, it's not sensationalizing darkness. Like if I think about things that are like, like purposefully very dark and violent, gratuitously. So this is not, this is, you have to look at this. You need to think about this. And our brains don't necessarily like being taken out of our status quo. 
I'd also add that I kind of think there are some qualities of horror in it. I mean, I do think there's elements of horror in some of the imagery and some of the um, events that happen, especially in the prequel. The prequel gets a little more so than the movie, the original movie, in my opinion. I mean, I was. Yeah, it doesn't. It picks apart. It absolutely does. For sure. But it doesn't sensationalize it. It doesn't make it gratuitous. And it doesn't oversimplify it either because several of the characters aren't 100% good or 100% scary. Or 100% beautiful or 100% scary. There's like a right. nu- nuance and scale, you know. Yeah. Makes you ask and Henson, questions about what is beauty and what is good and what is bad, which is what we should be doing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Henson got that feedback right away from um, production and sponsors saying, this, you're going to freak people out. This is too weird. Mm-hmm. Um and the fact that Henson was like, you know what? Um, I'm going to do it anyway. He's like, he bought back the rights mm-hmm. to the movie. <laughs> like he put, he did the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is like put your own money into these things. That's a really amazing piece. I did not know. And it, I love it. He's just like, you know what? Screw you. <laughs> I'm telling my story. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that this was sort of like his baby, that this was, of course, he put himself into everything he did, but that this was, I think maybe, I don't have an exact quote, but the the thing he made that he was the most proud of or yeah. saw as really his kind of mess- message or had the most message in it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, I find it, again, I know we keep saying this, but it, it is tragic to me that both times it was released, it's not received the way I think it should have been or like not continued the way it should have been. And I just, I am very curious what that says about culture. I just have a lot of questions about that, but maybe that's just me being pretentious a little. I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit of both. I have strong feelings about it. I think it's an important story and like, you know. Yeah. Why is it an important story? Let's go into some of the well um, aspects of what it is. Right off the bat, the thing that stood out when we were doing a little, digging about it was that Jim Henson wanted this to be a darker story. It wanted, wanted it to be a Grimm's fairy tale, not a, not a um, neutered version of a story that has dark parts. And um, just mm-hmm. as with Banshees of Inishirin, um there's a reason for that in our culture. Um, at this point, I think we can all kind of agree that we set ourselves up to not be connected to other, to like, the darker parts of being alive, death, illness, um, corruption. We almost like pretend it's not happening in general. Um, and it might be because our stories have become blind to it as well. And I think it was cool that Jim Henson wanted to make something that was an initiation into the full gamut of the human experience, not just one piece, the happy, fun, shiny, young time part. And, um, and he pulled from, I don't think it was an accident, lots of, you know, of those fairy tale elements that we talked about in our last episode. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's why it's important. I think he was making a myth for modern times. I think that it's, um, we liked it for a reason as children, because it was something we just instinctually knew in our bones um, without even knowing we knew it. Yeah. And I think yeah, yeah. There's some really good kind of 
um, thematics that you can pull apart. Like for me, the kind of opening, <clears throat> the opening idea that um, this like Taoist style master um, knew of a prophecy and was harboring the chosen one. And that opening line of him saying, I should have told you this <laughs> sooner. Here's the thing that you need to live up to. And then, you know, like right away, him saying, I'll be with you. Like I'm, my body is going, but I will be, we'll meet in another life. You know, so like right away, you are being gifted this kind of um, Taoist larger sense of life and death and continuation. That was very, very potent for me. Yeah. I love the, um, that right away there's, a parallel between the Skeksis. Um, is it okay if there's, you know, I guess there's spoilers, spoiler alert. Um, this is the beginning. <laughs> Always the spoilers. But, um, you know, you have the Skeksis, you know, there's those that connection between each time one of them, you know, they're each connected. And when the emperor oh, is dying, he is such a lack of acceptance of the fact that he is dying. He's like, I'm not dead yet. You know, and just like, absolute opposite of this um of the, the mystic complete acceptance gentle. like this is happening like yeah yeah um, that's one that's one right off the bat clue of what the where the line is drawn between them i guess um and totally it, and speaking to the bigger myth one thing i realized really recently actually in thinking about this um podcast is um, so when I first saw the Dark Crystal, I had—I I don't think I had seen a lot of my favorite, what are now my favorite shows or movies. And now that I look at it, so many of them, um, which like um, Miyazaki movies like Princess Mononoke and Princess Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and Avatar The Last Airbender, like so many of them had the same myth, <laughs> which is like some coming of age young person has to figure out what's going on in the world so they can heal it and that and there is there are forces in the world that are not respecting nature that are not respecting that are trying to take you know almost like a colonizing element or um imperialistic yeah. element that is thwarting you know this sort of journey or natural order that's um, that's you know complicated, and and I realized that this. I, I'm trying to think if I Dark Crystal might have been the first time I ever saw that in that way, and I think that's why. I really think that's why the elements that stick out for me of the ecosystems and the podlings who are closer to the earth, and then the exploitation of them, and the you know the way they just go out and get all these things to eat, and um, it's it's uh it's right in there with the, you know, it's not just about healing the crystal. It's also about this other dynamic of, uh, of kind of what's happening with even like resources and, um, people's, you know, different peoples and their ability to live freely versus being oppressed. Like that's something that comes up in a lot of myths that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. Um, the, the thing that flowed on for me after I watched the dark crystal was also mm. burn gully. And it has that same sense of the, this mindset is going to destroy. It's going to poison. 
and it will leave everything in and even the never ending story had the same thing the nothing um this idea that we could be subsumed by being out of balance or you know this like destructive force yes. and the out of balance was what i wanted to jump in because there was this one conversation vanessa and i had about when the skexies and the mystics when they were split apart they were two extremes and neither of them necessarily were things we thought were good. Like the mystics were almost too docile and too like removed, almost like Mm -hmm. not even having a response or like, like I should have told you this a while ago. Yeah. You should have told them that a while ago. And then you have, Mm -hmm. um, and then like also when they're walking to the castle near the end and one of them dies because I forget which one falls Maybe it's the scientist who falls into oh, yeah. and the other one dies on his way to the castle. And Vanessa was like, and they don't even seem that upset about it. They're just like, you know, like, oh, well. Yeah, they kind of look. Yeah. yeah. And then you have. That's all. They just look. They're like, yeah. And then the Skeksis are just overblown. The Skeksis are just like, everything's a big deal. They freak out. They're violent. They're, they can't handle their emotions. They're greedy. Nothing's ever enough for them. They're self-obsessed. They're narcissistic. So you have like these two extremes. So when things are out of balance, it's kind of like what we talked about in The Witcher. It's distortion. You have like these two different mm-hmm. far extremes of what humans can be or people can be or just existence can be. And when they're in balance, yeah. you're working in synergy. And what does the crystal represent? It represents, I guess, all of that or the heart of the heart of life or something. You know, it, it kind of represents a lot of things. It's kind of everything is kind of summed up in the crystal means in a larger picture. Well, so in the in the origin of the dark crystal you have like the whole crystal and then it's um there is a shard that's been taken out of it and that's the the separation right. the schism happens and these beings are separated because of that and vanessa when you were talking about kind of um not having there was like a moment where you were like what does these what do these two halves yeah. mean mm-hmm. to me and this is what I am working on in this moment with with kind of like integrated shadow work is like the the myth that um, good and evil are sundered apart and that we are disconnected from our whole integrated selves. And so when I thought about potentially the most important aspect of my personal journey in relation to the dark crystal, it's that sense of neither of those two things are integrated Hmm. and they're not complete until they're put together. And then I'm realizing key word is dream fasting, which is the the birth of our name of our podcast. And I remember very distinctly talking with Dave, watching that and realizing that, and I've talked about this with Vanessa too, and probably you, some version of the fact that they take away, you kind of learn in the prequel that they take away their the Gelfling's ability to be connected with the collective consciousness. Because the if you haven't seen it, the Gelflings can connect psychically with each other. And they're taught that it's dangerous to do. It's dangerous to connect. It's mm. dangerous to use your intuition. How scary is that? And isn't that what all big governments do? They tell you you can't trust yourself. They tell you they know more than you, they, whoever they are. And through whatever means they can, media or whatever. And then suddenly we aren't communicating with each other and we don't trust our own feelings. And I think that a lot of havoc has been wrought in every society because we've in some ways had that taken away. And 
That certainly is the message yeah. today is going, returning back to yeah. your inner voice um, that hasn't been um, questioned, you know, like even when it comes to just like listening to your body, like if I have to pee, I have to pee. I'm not going to hold it just because I'm in right. the middle of a class. Like the, that is the message that I'm, that is like the contemporary message. Like, listen to yourself. Who who were you before these things were put on yeah. you? And in the movie, when they first connect, when Jen is the, it's the first time Jen's ever seen anyone who looks like him and she pulls him out of the water and they connect and they see each other's history. It's very moving. Yeah. And it's like, we've all had that experience yeah. in some way where we've had that conversation or we've just, just connecting over this, you know, like um, you can, know each other from those symbols and those feelings and like that's dream fasting and that's an amazing word i actually want to know the origin and where they got that word from but it's so important i think that's a huge piece of this that like is a message yeah. and an important piece of the myth about inner self and connecting with each other and not letting those higher dominating powers take over yeah so we've got like being yeah. out of balance we've got like dualism yeah, yeah. I, I also think that in addition to connecting with each other, which I love, I love that. Um, I feel like there's an element where like Kira knows about plants and yes. mm -hmm. the earth, and there's that kind of lineage that she, I think, has learned from the Padawans. Yes, but that that's right. That yeah. is also, you know, something that to me represents. You know, I think in in our culture we are sort of taught oh you can kind of dabble with that stuff but you're not you know it's not legitimate or somehow right. or you know just the ability to connect to each other and like heal ourselves and connect to the earth mm. directly and mm. that's kind of always been seen as dangerous in some ways by you know right people who like to <laughs> um like have power over other people is they don't want like you said they whoever they is yeah then like you know for us to trust ourselves and each other and our connection to the, to nature is you know that's that's dangerous that's uh <laughs> it's seen as dangerous and you're threatening to our ability to be controlled and um yeah that, i i'm thinking just to go back a little bit to the skexies and the mystics and you know, it's tempting for me to just kind of see it as good and bad. I mean, in some at first glance, I would say that is how I saw it. Uh, because the Skeksis are just, like you said, so overly, you know, they're violent, they're overly ambitious, they're all, you know, they don't get along with each other, they're trying to exploit and get everything. There's so many negative qualities to them that it's hard to find what might be positive about them i guess to me and whereas the mystics it's it's almost harder to find what might be lacking where you know it's mm -hmm. you know they are and and it's a question i have with my own life because i i meditate and i sometimes you know i'm just wondering like okay like how much action do you want to put into the world versus acceptance and that's kind of this perennial mm. perennial question that i think the mystics really they do symbolize that and they do tend towards inaction um they also though are delving into the realm like they have mathematics and they have philosophy and they have sound and i feel like they're very connected to this primordial force of sound which i'm really i think comes up in this movie yes. as well and um 
but yeah, at the same time, like when you look at the, this is a story about the crystal needing to be healed. Like this symbol of wholeness is in trouble and something needs to happen. Some action needs to be taken. So the mystics alone won't, you know, will just, they, they, you wonder if they would just rather be just as happy to sit by. Well, well, whatever happens, but then they do mobilize very slowly <laughs> and they do, <laughs> you know, they do teach Jen what they need to teach them, but it's, yeah, it does seem like, I'm curious about what y'all think about that. Just because to me, I do feel like, like this is an interesting conversation because it's not quite mystics, good, skeptics, mm-hmm. bad, but it, it, it yeah. does, it does feel like there's a lot of kind of almost evidence towards mostly the sexies are the bad side and the mystics are the good side to me. But I also feel like, yeah, the mystics are missing something or they, it, they like yeah. they aren't whole on their own. They're, well, it's so fascinating to me. We're- yes. I mean, and this is the difference between like all other um, like kind of Disneyified stories and kind of like our original roots of stories is that the moral high ground is not mm-hmm. the point, you know, <laughs> and I, that's I, I can't f- more wholesomely, fullheartedly agree with you that if you approach these stories as this good, this bad, then you have potentially suffered the the fate of well, the moral high ground. Yeah, and, well, also, yeah. the truth of the matter is, no matter what anyone, you know, maybe it's hard for the general, for people to see, but we are and can be both of those characters. We can be mystics and skexies. We have the capacity for either one. And and part of Absolutely. the way of being a whole human is accepting that truth. And I think that yes. like, you know, this this had this had, you know, and, and the way you don't become <laughs> one of those is knowing they exist. You have to look at them both. You have to see how dark it can get and you have to see how great it can get. And you have to find some middle ground in between because dark and light is part of the dynamics of the universe. And like, um, mm. I mean, I know, I don't think I'm jumping. I think it makes sense to talk about Ogre as definitely an Earth mother type yeah. character. She could be a Baba Yaga. <laughs> she mm-hmm. could be a Kaliak. And also, be... I just yeah, no, go. Also, yeah. just very quickly, the the, pod, the yeah. podlings. Like, thank you, Vanessa, for reminding me how um, how beloved they actually are. I think they get downplayed so much. But like, if I think about all the best myths and all the best characters within stories, the ones that are closest to the earth, the littlest are usually the best ones. (laughs) They're a little more, they're connected. They're tuned in. Yeah. But Ogre, Ogre is our um, surrogate. Yeah. And I I also, I'm I'm going to put something in here because uh, I want to say we just have, Mm. I want to reference the podlings and the torture, like, I think when we were talking about our initial experiences, something else, because I remember going in and seeing the movie in the theater, and I've seen it many times, but I still get deeply uncomfortable um, in those scenes. I get uncomfortable where Kira is being almost having all her essence sucked out. I feel very uncomfortable when the podlings get captured. It's very disturbing for me. And Vanessa and I had forgotten that at the end, when the crystal is healed, the podlings come back. They don't they're not dead. They, they come out of it and they get their essence back. And like, for some reason, both of us, I remember being on the phone being like, oh yeah, because it was like, (laughs) when you're a kid, that's like terrifying and we might not have noticed it. And also I remember seeing, it's subtle. subtle. And then in the scene where Kira almost gets her essence sucked out, I remember telling myself, it's really funny, but I was literally telling myself, she calls the animals, (laughs) she calls the animals, don't worry. 
and she does and she like does this amazing sound and all the animals save her yeah yeah (laughs) you know and so like even in the darkest moments when they made this they did put that beauty in there that like fighting back energy hope 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 for regeneration yeah and even ogra yeah and even ogra who is this you know wise woman doesn't have all the answers and and spoiler alert but she is part of the reason why this all happened and um, if you read the lore, yeah. fascinating. And um, she's flawed, which is great. Good and evil. This is this is playing in like she is not perfect. You know, she messed up. And so um, and she's doing her best to fix it. And, you know, I just remember hearing her voice in that scene where Kira's, you know, Olga is the one who reminds her, you have this power, call the animals. I don't know. There's just something really moving to me about that. Um, mm. I'm so sorry. The dog. Stop it. I think (laughs) there's so much that could be said probably about Ogre, but I think the first thing that kind of struck me about her when I first saw it and every time is like, I feel like she does remind me a little bit when you consider this was made in 82. um, And then this, just thinking about this almost archetype of like, um, I don't know, just sort of a sort of seventies era, you know, feminist woman who like, I don't know. There's just a lot of like, even her outfit mm-hmm. or the fact that she's not, mm-hmm. you know, she's like the only boobies we really see in this, <laughs> in this are hers. Yeah. And they're like bra- braless yeah. and unabashed, you know, unabashed. And they're obviously not sexualized, but uh, also like kind of a little bit in your face. Yes. <laughs> and then you, then you also have her, her attitude towards everybody, including Jen, including this doesn't matter if she's talking to Jen or the Skeksis or the, 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 beetle robot things that are attacking her she's just like yes she's very kind of um uh defiant and just sort of reminds me of an older um like an elder woman who just doesn't give a crap you know who's just like uh whatever (laughs) like i'm going to yell at anybody i like i'm not intimidated by you and yes there's also something mysterious about her where you know she has a lot of knowledge and but she also doesn't have all the questions and when she goes to speak to the Skeksis too and she's like well you should have asked me like almost kind of suggesting that maybe she would have betrayed you know uh Jen but also maybe she's playing the Skeksis maybe she would never have done that and it's it's totally left open it's it's not clear and I want I'm I'm curious what Rudo and Pixie what you think about her if she's trustworthy is it supposed to be ambiguous like well, how do you see prior to me realizing that you know she had her eye up in the heavens and wasn't paying attention to the out of balance um activities that were going on right in front of her but prior to me understanding that i thought she was perfect and i thought i was her like mm-hmm. i had a deep identification um if i think about my lineage like my bloodline we are a bunch of ogres. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I was like, big old boobies, <laughs> nipples swinging around. I was like, that's me. That is me. And I was like, so excited to be ogre yeah. growing up mm-hmm. and just really had a strong preference towards her way of being. Um, but also kind of like, why does she have to be grotesque? But that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of like, 
realizing that she's imperfect, I think is exactly what happens to you when like you realize that your parents aren't perfect. There's like this sense of like this mm. governing protective um, element to her that she's intuiting the the stars and the heavens and, and re- representing what needs to happen on earth. But she's so deeply flawed. It's like the exact same realization that happened to me. So many thoughts. So I want to say about the grotesque thing, because I've talked about this and thought about this so many times, and I'm reading about it right now, um, about how women are represented, especially older women. Um, I actually don't think she is grotesque. I just think we've been conditioned to think she is. I think that she's part of the earth. I think she looks a little different. I think she's pretty badass. And I think she's kind of hot in her own way. So like, it doesn't always have to be like sexual, but I think she's attractive. Like, she, she stands in that room with those evil beings and like, basically cusses them out and she's not and she's smaller than them and she has one eye that she i don't know it's just like she so like i feel that and i agree but i also feel like taking it back and being like she's not grotesque like you just people don't have open minds like about what beauty is you know um uh as far as far as her like her flaws i i know i i can't help but bring into the prequel there's this amazing scene in the prequel where she realizes she lost her connection to the earth, that she was distracted. Do you remember that scene where she's praying, doing all these rituals? She's trying to connect to the earth and she realizes she just has to listen. Do you guys remember that scene? It's a really beautiful scene and she's dancing. Um, if you don't remember. I haven't finished it. Well, finished there's this the scene where she has this spiritual experience and I feel like it's important that she's flawed because it makes her all the wiser. And that's what the whole point of the Skeksis and the mystics is like, she kind of is able to balance between the two. I think she has aspirations of grandeur. I think she got really excited about knowing all this, these big stuff like anyone does, but the difference with her is she recognizes her mistake. And I think that like, she has to live with that mistake, but don't we all have to do that? We've all done that. Mm -hmm. And and the only, and Mm -hmm. what you do with it is the big thing. And she's, trying to write it and working with the environment. So yeah, I think she's a pretty amazing, amazing character. And she's one of my favorites too. She's just, she rewrites the book on what women are and what they look like and what they should be. It's huge. And I'm sure he did mm-hmm. that on purpose as well. And also, didn't we talk about who played her? It was a male, Frank Oz. Frank and we Oz. can talk about gender now. I feel like it's a perfect segue because it's interesting that he plays. Yeah. Him. Yeah. So you've got this kind of divine earth mother um, <laughs> inside her is this d- divine creative man yeah. energy as well. So there you go. There's our, there's our symbol for the. Yeah. And then theme. we also, I know yeah. Vanessa has thoughts on, and I do too, about the Gelflings and how they are in some ways. I feel pretty androgynous. Um, maybe not quite stereotyped as maybe male and females are. Vanessa, do you have thoughts on that or am I not reading that right? What you thought? Oh, well, I mean, I, I don't know if I said androgynous, but I think we talked about that. Yeah. To me, to me, it's a little bit more of, I see it as a healthy balance of male and and masculine and feminine energy almost in like, I do think, well, for the Gelflings, I do think that there is an argument to be made that it's almost, uh, uh, there's some aspects of a, you know, a description of a healthy relationship of a healthy even romantic relationship or a healthy expression of masculine and feminine. Like, um, I feel like neither Jen nor Kira are, are playing, are, you know, playing out gender roles 
exactly as we mm-hmm. as we normally see them in movies and um also not doing so I, I see them as they each have their own skills. They mm-hmm. each have their own powers. They're not, they, they are curious about each other's abilities and um, they learn from each other. And I think Jin learns a little bit more from Kira just because she's been in the world a little bit more. And he's been, I think more sheltered, mm-hmm. but he also has his, you know, his music and he has his contemplation. And I mean, he brings things too. And I think that I do think it also in the eighties, especially, I think a lot of media was starting to show, well, well, girls are powerful and awesome. And like, I think her having wings sort of is almost like a symbol of that. Like, well, girls are are great, you know, (laughs) actually they can do anything and they're powerful. But at at the same time, I don't, and she's very brave. Like I think here is the most brave, one of the most brave characters in the whole movie. Um, if not the most, the most brave, she's resourceful, she's brave, but she, but I I think she doesn't go all the way into that. What I see as a trope, a little bit of like, okay, well, let's just make a badass female character who can do everything. And it's just like unrealistically awesome. And will be the savior. Like, I, I, I I don't think they get, it, it gets into that territory. I think it is like, you know, very generous to her of having amazing traits. And she also like, they kind of need each other and they help each other and they work together. And, you know, like, even though she's just, I don't, I don't find her to be sexualized at all, but she's also very beautiful. Like her hair's a little messy, but like, I think that makes her cuter, you know, and like, like she's definitely like a a beautiful, you know, I think, I think Jen and Kira almost represent like this youthful, more youthful, exploring, fresh, (laughs) you know, version. Whereas Augur, I think is the, you know, has a more experienced, yeah. And I just want to next stage. <laughs> I just want to make one comment about Frank Oz and playing Agra because I think he also plays Miss Piggy. He does. Like that's like a big. He's Miss Piggy, and and I think Miss Piggy. Not to get not to go off on a tangent about all the Muppets, <laughs> but um, but he she also has a very similar level of confidence, knowledge of her imperfections, <laughs> and like um authority, and. It's true, you know, and I like that idea of you know. But another character I highly <laughs> over-identified with. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think it's great. But um, I don't know. I like how Agra is um, is really confident and not intimidated, and at the same time, I don't get the sense that she's deluded and she's completely unaware of her own imperfections. And I also. Yeah, like kind of what you were saying, Pixie. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't get the sense that she is kept awake at night all the time and just so upset about the mistakes that she's made as, as well. Like, she, like, if there's a sense like it's okay to be imperfect. Maybe it's not, you know, it causes its, it has its consequences. Yeah. But she is just going to go forward in who she is and what she's up to with all of her vital life energy. Regardless, it's not about trying to be perfect or. And it kind of reminds me of what you're saying about the lack of a moral high ground to Rudo, too. Yeah, she's a really amazing character. I feel like you could just talk about her for an hour. I mean, she's just... Well, I just think it's so great that you're talking about um, the healthy relation between, you know, two two elements. Yeah. Whether it's the um, kind of earthly versus um, more intellectual or, you know, gender. All of those things around being in relation you've got that there. Thank you so much for bringing that up. 
because I think some of my favorite uh, myths are around partnerships mm-hmm. of equals. Mm-hmm. Um, the story of Rhiannon, the fairy fairy queen that um, finds a earthly bound prince and like horrible things happen to her. Yes, but they always trust each other and listen to each other. And like within the setting of like a royal court where that would not is not the norm. Um, that they listen to each other and make decisions collectively to each other. It's like the exact same. I was like, oh yeah, that's a thematic that's very important to me. It reminds me a little bit of Princess Mononoke as well. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, that's true. These are important things. And I don't know if I'm (laughs) off by thinking, I initially was thinking about the visuals of Jen and Kira and I think I said androgynous because I feel like they're not stereotypically male, female, I feel like they're both. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but I just feel like, you know no, what I mean, the creativity yeah. around that, yeah, and even actually between um, the the tension between mm-hmm. puppetry and human humanistic mm-hmm. qualities while creating a puppet. Apparently, there's like, um, like a Goldilocks zone where if you make a puppet too human like, it gets too disturbing for our consciousness and starts to become very unsettling and grotesque. But if, like, if you get it too far away from the human quality then it's just more like it's a harder thing to connect to well that's actually making me wonder i'm going to ask a question we just delved into characters and what they symbolize for us for sure i don't know if we're done yet i feel like they're still characters but maybe we're wrong we got a lot more to go but but i do want to talk a lot about that fade into the people that made them because that's a whole other magical aspect of this so um yeah so we talked about Ogra, Kira, Jen. Who else do we want to talk about? Matt? Yeah, we have this ongoing. Um, I think we just can keep coming back to the Skeksis and the Mystics as as it as it fits the theme. Um, I guess we could talk about Fizz Gig. <laughs> I mean, oh, I mean, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I love Fizz Gig. And I know when he's like Fizz Fizzgig, stay and he's like ah! like you see like his little teeth and he's got teeth inside of his teeth and he's um he does end up helping out a lot at the end right like he's yeah he plays his little part oh yeah he does he's very important and then Ogre says yeah him. what are you doing down there she says <laughs> also the the land striders um apparently um a lot of critics were very disturbed by the look of the land love them. love them but i find i found them to be incredibly mm-hmm. beautiful and re-watching it i was like shit that's so yeah, dolly driven better in my opinion oh, um so much better but totally and apparently the people that were manning those um creatures they were on stilts and it was like such a health and safety uh fear that henson made them all um, attached to these kind of wires that suspended them. So if they tripped and fell, they would just kind of dangle <laughs> in the air and be like, the main thing. <laughs> what I wouldn't have given to have worked on that. I just, oh my God. I'm curious about the land striders um, as, as characters um, because they kind of come out of nowhere. They're, ve- I think they're very beautiful Me too. Um, they look like little wise eagles or something, but they have this like very graceful, very like land That's animal. That's like a little bit like kind of but but like what's their deal why because i especially watching it on the big screen like they it was 
I well, it was one of those things that I think really were, you know, worth seeing on the big screen yeah. was Land Striders. And they're kind of the way that they, you know, they come, they come when beckoned, they help, they sacrifice. Yeah, they do. They die. And I just, I'm, I'm just curious about them. Like they're just, you know, what is their alliance, allegiance? Oh. Are they just so of the earth that they're just trusting Kira that like she somehow they have like some kind of relationship and they just are, I mean, the, the, the generosity of the land striders, I think is moving and mm. it's, a, it's one of us, one of, uh, one of and the, they, they actually, they fought they viciously. The beetles that were like yeah. attacking, they, they, they fought, they weren't just like kind of helpless, hapless. Mm -hmm. Like one of them, like, like straight up punched the beetles with their little leg. Yeah. I mean, I think what you said about having a connection to Kira that's what I think it is. I think that she might be the most connected in a lot of ways because she's lived almost that more humble, not super removed, like actively engaging with the environment and has a deep trust with them. And she can somehow talk. I wonder where that came from. She can talk to the animals. Yeah. Also the evolution, like maybe they, they evolved as their world evolved. Cause this is this, you know, this is the land that's been, impacted by the the skexies kind of fucking with the um abundance yeah. of this land so perhaps they've they've had to evolve over time as That's well true. and i'd also imagine that perhaps the creatures sense that there's something wrong i mean if you see the prequel there's something called the darkening and the environment has been through a lot if you you learn a lot mm. from that prequel so um, mm. maybe the creatures are wanting balance. <gasps> the prequel talks about them being matrilineal. The gal, the gelflings are matrilineal, which I didn't. When not you say that, know. you mean like run by women, like having a woman leader? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Yep. Well, and you and you would like your last name might come from your mom's side, right? Or, like I know in matrilineal indigenous communities, it's like you know traditionally, if if you got married, you'd move into the you know, the, the women's family's house over the, yeah. Yeah. And the ruling, um, the ruling group were all handed down by the female line. Yeah. So that's, you're saying gelflings are matrilineal. Mm -hmm. okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. It was like the seven clans all were ruled by queens. And then there was one queen to rule them all. Hmm. And that queen is also quite flawed. <laughs> yeah. She's, <laughs> So, you know, Jim Henson, kudos to all the writers. They made real characters. That's the theme. It's about that balance and what happens when it's distorted and what happens when um, we're a little more honest and level-headed. We're still going to make mistakes, but we can own them. And the queen does own her yeah. mistake. Um, yeah. Her daughter, kind of. But... So the people that actually made this myth, the creators that participated in, in making this, you've got Henson, who apparently, um, you know, he's he's quite like a new age guy. He was very Aquarian. He had um, he was really, really interested in Taoism and Zen Buddhism. And he began reading this like deeply kind of new age spiritual uh, text called um, Seth Speaks. And so he doled out that book to the team that he wanted to create this movie with him. And he was building this world based on the premise of knowing that he had kind of um, 
had this calling to make a, a large myth. And the what I love about all of this is, I don't know about you, Vanessa, as much, but like Pixie and I talk about channeling quite a lot, like in terms of when things come through us, sometimes it happens like in a, in a large flurry mm-hmm. uh, of this like burst of energy. And um, apparently that's kind of what happened to Henson. He was snowed in at an airport hotel um, and wrote the first draft of The Dark Crystal in one sitting and then shared that with um, Frank Oz and David O'Dell, who wrote the language and the speech. Apparently, The Dark Crystal was going to be subtitled because O'Dell had written like an entire language. And they decided not to do it. And there's only a few points where like the Skeksis say some of that language. Yeah. Yeah. But then they might have. Yeah. Yeah. And and then writers um, for the prequel, like the the Netflix series, built up language again, um, which gets used. And the, there's a young adult um, series that the entire language is there. You can learn. Are you it serious? <laughs> Wait, is this the books by J.M.? I think I might know. Is the, are these the young adult novels that were written? I have mm-hmm. one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've read the graphic novels, but I need oh, to reread them because yeah. they're just so dense. But yeah, um, yeah, the lore is intense. And then you have Brian really good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then who does he go to he goes to brian froud to to paint the the he's i i call brian froud the human ambassador to the mystical elemental world mm. like it had to happen he had to have someone like froud to to make this movie um and yeah the art of brian froud was like absolutely something that i have been floored by since i was little as well I feel like he um, he himself is sort of a channeler or someone who is <laughs> close to the earth. I feel like he brings, and he's from the British Isles, right? Like the mm-hmm. there's definitely like you, like you can feel in his art. I think specifically the magic of maybe some ancient you know connection to that lands. It's you know his art is like he's obviously not from you know the like rainforest or anything like he's he's from where he's from and i think he does a beautiful job channeling that the magic of of that landscape mossy fern cave-like with bogs and marshes like it's it's it definitely his aesthetic all over it (laughs) and even just the techniques you know um pixie was alluding to this that um the the way that it's been created has um this kind of ancient technique, hundreds of years old technique of painting on glass and creating layers through that. Yuri Norstein, Russian animation. That, oh, yes. I mean, that has its yes. place in the We like this technique. Yeah. The, the actual art of animation and kind of just this like craftsmanship is so important, I think, because we, we feel it just as deeply as we feel, um, you know, fairy tales and the the tactics of myth, we feel when something has been lovingly mm. touched mm-hmm. by a master craftsperson. Yeah. And each of those puppets had had been brought lovingly brought into life. By yes. Artists. This is something I wanted to speak on what um Ruta was writing about when we were all talking about how you kind of wanted to hide from yourself the back like the background of things because it ruined the magic for you it was like to know how it was made almost like the magic trick was found and and i was thinking about that statement 
because more and more in my delving into modern myth, which I guess is what we we seem to talk about a lot, Indeed. is that the magic is actually there in the making of it. I think we're all artists here. We all create different things. And in that making of an herbal potion like Vanessa does or in Vanessa also makes art or in the artwork Rudo and I make um, in the process is so much uh, power. And I have said things like, I think Tolkien was channeling another dimension. Um, I think based on potentially what Jim Henson was getting from that book or I think they, as a team, were channeling something too. I think they were channeling another dimension. And I'm not sure what I mean by that. But I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, I'm reading some work by Sharon Blackie, who's an amazing writer. Um, And she talks a lot about the other world and how the Enlightenment kind of, while there were some great things about the Enlightenment, it also took away our sense of wonder. And we stopped believing in other realities or other ways of looking at the world. And artists haven't forgotten. They just get told they're not making sense. And so what I'm trying to get at here is you have this group of people who wrote the story and kind of channeled some interesting, different ways of looking at things and old ways of telling stories. And there was a combination Mm -hmm. of artists and craftspeople and technicians and writers who, when you look at those puppets, when you look at the imagery and the texture i mean it glows on the screen especially i think Mm. what re-energized it for me and vanessa was seeing it big like that like it was just this it's in the end part when they glow and they come back together the whole room lights up i mean and it's all Mm -hmm. handmade it's all like sweat and it's just like tears and everything it must have been so much work and i think in that making of it when you learn about that to me, it deepens the magic. I think that and when I was younger, it might not have. But now I think yeah. that I don't know if that, if that is something you're thinking of, but that's what I feel. Yeah, that's exactly. It. You've described yeah. it perfectly. I didn't want to yeah. know then, but now knowing it now, it's equally yeah. magical and it scratches an itch that I didn't Same. know I had when I was yeah. younger. Vanessa, were you going to say something? I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I'm going to try to gonna try to like organize them. I have three main things I want to say from from that. The first one is, well, first of all, just a little background on me. I actually went to decide to go to school for animation. And um, <clears throat> I a lot of that is because of watching the Jim Henson Creature Shop documentaries as a kid and just be, like seeing the behind the scenes and seeing just the magic of that, like, yeah, that group production. And I agree. I think there's like there's a channeling that happens in any art. And it's very it's there's a particular magic to when you have a group of people like anybody who's done theater and has kind of felt that even you know, no matter mm-hmm. what your role is in that and um c- coming together and i i i wonder if maybe you could say that they're channeling you know they're taking this myth there's obviously messages but then the magic might come in when if there's intuitive aspects um of what maybe what the world needs right now almost like a parallel to the dark crystal myth itself of you know what like what will heal the crystal like what what kind of things can we can we show and portray that might heal our society or our society may still need to learn and that i i I would guess some of that might have been subconscious and so you know that might have been a little bit felt through as well as thought about rationally and um just like one example that i have for that would be 
again, back to the bondlings. Um, but that idea of taking their essence oh. to beat death. I mean, that is what the Skeksis are doing. Yeah. Um, they're not just because, because they, yeah, sure. They're trying to keep the prophecy from happening. So they need to hunt. They feel that for their own protection, they can make a case that they need to somehow destroy the Gelfling, which obviously I don't agree with, but you can see there's like, but the podlings exploiting them. It, they're just trying to beat aging and mm-hmm. they're just like, Oh, like they're, they're willing to just, and they're sucking the vital essence. I mean, there's like, that's such a deep idea, um, in and of itself. And uh, mm. I was so happy to see them at the end just to see them get their essence back yeah. because I don't know. I, I, I mean, and, and looking at it now, I mean, the way they stare at the like glowing crystal, like, you know, not to go off into a whole thing, but it almost reminds me of like how like a sc- the screen time and like oh, how our essence was like, you know, kind of oh, getting no! mind Social media being mind. And in addition to yes. the the very real denial of death or wanting to be young and 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 what, do it like almost going at any length to uh, have you know youth and in more youth and you here I don't know so there's there's those are two of the things and then the other thing I wanted to say related to you know I actually didn't end up I I don't I'm not an animator um, largely because the entire industry shifted away from hand drawn and hand mm-hmm. puppets to uh, computers. I mean, even while I was in school, they, they like, that's so uh, sad. Um, yeah. I went, uh, like, I what happened yeah. to us. Yeah. They, we were forced to learn yeah. computer graphics and we were like, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was kind of curious to learn it because I do think the computer can do a lot of great things, but I would rather do it by hand and then use the computer later to do like, you know, to like edit it or tweak that's it. Or, what they did with the prequel. But, do, mm-hmm. but now they, yeah, which is how they, I think that's a good synthesis, but they do so much just on the computer. And I, I, you know, and I do think there's a place for computers and animation. I mean, there, gosh, there's just, you know, 12, 12 pictures a second. It really can, it can help to repeat certain elements. But um, I can notice, I just want to say, like, I can notice, this is mysterious to me too, when, like, the difference between a puppet and mo- and versus motion capture. It's like, even if you use technology, oh, yeah. it doesn't really make logical sense why I should be able to tell whether something is, and I can't always tell, like, just know. if computers were involved, maybe I can't tell this or that, but yeah, you, like, if something is puppet, you can tell it's puppet, and, and I have yet to see a computer-generated, you know, film where it's, it's, it really looks as real, and I, I think puppets don't quite look real, but there's something that almost feels more real about yes. them than computer generation that might actually be technically more accurate, and I find that really mysterious, mm-hmm. just that alone is sort of mysterious to me. Vanessa, you are describing what the the team in the prequel experienced. They actually did a test where they did the Skeksis mm-hmm. as puppets and the Gelflings yes, as this. animated, and it was so disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, "Okay, we're we're going with puppets." But they tactfully. <laughs> I wish you could have worked on this, Vanessa. I think you would have been great on the team. <laughs> they they Thanks did do <laughs> they did do little things like um technologically to make the facial expressions a little work a little better but it was subtle and i was mm-hmm. thinking of this scene and i know i i know maybe you guys haven't seen everything but like there's this one of the skexies is a hunt called the hunter and he ha- there are some scenes where he's jumping in the trees and i'm fairly certain that was probably a little computerized but then you also see him as a puppet mm-hmm. but they do it in a way where like it's the i think it's the sweet spot i think they hit the sweet spot while mm. still maintaining that mm-hmm. puppet rawness. I mean, it's genius. It's brilliant. It's why I still sometimes call you guys up and I'm like, why didn't they make the next one? Like, 
like really <laughs> genuinely concerned for the world that they didn't make the next one because I'm just yeah. like, it was mm. like, it was absolutely perfection. Like who is not funding this? No. I have like a personal vendetta against who is not funding this. Fund it. Mm. I know. Oh, Vanessa, I had no idea that you were, um, that you started in, your intention was to be an animator. That's so cool. Yeah. I was really, really inspired by Jim Henson too. Um, I used to make pup like puppet movies with my video camera and <gasps> stop making when I was like a little kid. And that was the kind of nerdy thing I did in my free time. I want to see them so bad. Um, all the way through. I don't know if I, I have them. <laughs> I don't know. If I, I did claymation them. stop animation for like a summer school program once and it was like the best thing ever. Yeah. It's pretty great. And I think even whether you're doing computer or clay or anything, I think one difference is uh, that you can tell when an artist has gone into each frame, frame by frame, because I think a lot of times there's like shortcuts of, okay, we're going to connect these dots digitally. But when, and you can tell when, even if it's digital, but if it's digitally animated where somebody actually goes in and it might be on the computer, but they're paying attention to each frame or every other frame like throughout a facial expression or throughout a movement if an artist is you know paying attention to each getting in there like it does end up looking more like you know any kind of hand-drawn or authentic yeah and and I think a lot of times that you can really tell when the computer is filling in the gaps for you I love that. The I mean authenticity is really really important um, when we're talking within the context of art art in general but especially within the dark crystal even the cinematographer um oswald morris um created new um techniques to create the um etheric and dark textural lighting that froud's work has so like at every point at every step of the way you have um artisans and craftspeople and and like deeply passionate um, cheerleaders saying, we need to do this the right way. We have to be authentic to the intention. Yeah. And they create, that's another part of the tragedy. I think that Pixie and I have talked about where they created all of these things. Like these have been the sets and the characters and the, you know, all of the props were lovingly crafted and then to scale, to scale. Yeah. I'm imagining they, them sitting in a closet make, somewhere. They're not going to finish the story. Like what I happens? Know. It's like so wasteful. I don't get it. You know, because that's how that has to be a big part of the initial cost of the whole thing, too, is to just make all that. Like, what does it say about our society? I'm telling you, whatever bottom line reason we can't finish this story, it's not, it's not in a good stopping place. It's not. And, and I just, Mm -mm. you know, look at all the stuff that does get made. I'm just saying, like, there's some terrible stuff out there and it gets made Mm -hmm. over and over again for many seasons. And you have this, like, epic artistry that's true myth. That's like channel. That's a Grimm's fairy tale for our age, and they don't finish it. There's something subconsciously mm. going on with our collective consciousness that we're not able to face that and bring that to the forefront. I I know that sounds insane, but it's just how I feel. I just I'm I'm personally affronted. I just think it's like I know have some strong strong. Can feeling. one of us like get in touch <laughs> with um Henson Henson Production and the Henson Foundation? I mean, these are his yeah. daughters. Mm-hmm. We need to. Yeah. We need to ask what them is going on. What is going? And we're not the only on. ones. There are plenty of other people. I follow a lot of dark crystal people on Instagram. They're all doing podcasts about this. <laughs> we're not like we're not the only ones. They all talk about it. There's some people. We'll write a petition. They send a petition. We're not the only ones. There are other people. I want to call it civilians, not the media, who want to see it. <laughs> and it's, I think it's interesting that the history repeated itself. That there is still a, a wall between us and our dream fasting. 
let us dream fast. This reminds me, <laughs> you know, mm. this reminds me a little bit of the situation with Firefly mm. and and canceling that show after 14 episodes. And then I've never seen the that. fans kind of, but I've heard together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fans came mm-hmm. together, I think, and made, I don't know if they fu- ra- ra- raised funds Ooh. themselves. They just made a bunch of noise, but they ended up, ma- you know, they didn't continue the series, but they ended up making a movie to wrap up a lot of the loose ends. And it would be like, I would yes. rather them continue the series, but if at least, you know, it seems like they need we need to have at least something. We can't just be like, yeah, it's a, it was it's a cliffhanger a end, huge tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. It was not an end. It wasn't an end. We were waiting (laughs) with big breath for the next episode. And then I found, I haven't finished it yet, right? Uh, But like, you know, you're going to want to see the next episode. You're like, well, the next one. I mean, the decisions that get made around TV right now are really insane. And it's really complicated also because like it's new territory, this whole like major corporation streaming companies. It's very, I don't understand how good decisions are made necessarily i feel like there's a lot of guessing um but this this has yeah. to be revisited there's no way it's not going to be I, I have a lot of hope that it will i i mean it's important information for the world to watch so maybe we can same thing happened with the sandman mm-hmm. you know they weren't going to go forward and then enough people were like what the fuck we were watching it in our own pace just because yeah. your yeah. concept of when we were supposed to be watching it didn't meet your standards you motherfucker it's a capitalist system yeah, and then, yeah it's the quick it's the consumerism yeah. thing you gotta go mm-hmm. slow and you gotta go multiple times right this is part of the you were alluding pixie that we were going to talk about mm-hmm. some of the tactics of the way this is made these are the people that made mm-hmm. um star wars as well and like the the choice of creating something so rich and so complex that you um, cut frames very quickly so that you your your brain actually yeah. wants to see it multiple times i still want to see it that requires (laughs) it requires a leisurely lifestyle to be like i'm gonna watch that again watch that again i know i keep bringing it up but like i think i had a little moment when i was like i'm going to see this in the theater why is this i was asking the question why is this different and as soon as i got in i realized why because it because when you go to going into the theater is a magical experience you're going into a cocoon and you're having an experience and you're having this channeling you're having this, you know, conversation with a bunch of artists, basically, with through symbol and myth and whatever. And I was revisiting something I saw as a child. I don't think I ever got to see it on the big screen. And it was like seeing it for the first time again. The music, mm. being with other people in the room that you know are there because they want to see it, knowing Vanessa was watching it at the same time. Sense. There was something very cool about <laughs> that. That like I felt it was very powerful to me that they released it and certain people you know who feel the same as you are going to see it at the same time feeling the same things. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I felt I also just felt like being on the big screen. There were points that were just more powerful than watching. You know, yes. just like like being in the in the swamp or mm-hmm. even when the land striders, mm-hmm. um, you know, when they end up going to that pit at the end of their journey on the land striders i didn't really even just getting an orientation of that landscape was easier when it was large for me like it was a little bit chaotic to watch on a smaller screen where i wasn't sure where they were yeah and just seeing it in kind of more larger than life i was like oh okay this makes i don't know made, made the landscape was more immersive obviously which 
sometimes matters with movies more than others. And I think it was definitely worth going to. And I was a little, you know, surprised. Also, there weren't that many people in the theater. Me too. In Ithaca, yeah, not even in Pittsburgh either. Yeah, it was. And I, I bought tickets ahead of time thinking maybe it would be, you know, because it was only one or two show. I think it was two days only. It's like, oh, I better get tickets. And I like really sadly wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. <laughs> but if I had gotten them day of. Which, but it, it did Weird. seem like the people there, they were all around my age and they seemed yep. like they loved it. Yeah. You know, I did yeah. come to some, you know, I've written about this many times and I, in my newsletter, I wrote about it last year and I, I came to the realization that we all have different stories that reach us for different reasons at different times. So it just reached our generation specifically, I, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, and some people are terrified by puppets. I know some people who won't watch it because they are really disturbed by puppets. Um, and I've come to realize not it, not every myth is for everyone. So even though sometimes I feel like, why can't you see the, you know, um, it was meant for us, clearly. You know, it definitely was meant for us. It was meant for us to look at it and um, participate in it and deepen the myth by talking about it. Um, so I try to like, but I do have these feelings sometimes where I'm like, why aren't more people on board with this? <laughs> like, I'm so confused. And I, I go back and forth with having those like frustrated feelings and also realizing that there are some things that I don't like that people love, you know, that feel the same way about. So um, that's how I kind of deal with that. Sometimes you just got to do your your friend a solid and watch something that you don't want to watch. That's true, too. I, I, forced, I forced my beloved to watch Dark Crystal with me yesterday. Mm-hmm. And he went from yuck to oh, really okay which is actually a huge you know new zealand reactions <laughs> are very british so by him saying that's okay that's like an that's an american equivalent of wow that was wow. awesome okay well then yay bjorn we got him yeah <laughs> <laughs> so some, sometimes you just gotta i mean you did that to me in college um it would make you watch and a fall lot asleep. of things. Didn't always work. You yeah. would immediately well, fall that asleep. That was because I wasn't by getting enough sleep. But that's a whole other story. So anyway, um, mm. it feels like we're winding down, but I'm not sure. What do you guys think? How are you feeling? What's any any things like? I, I checked all my notes and I feel pretty good. I have three, <clears throat> three random things that are in my head. Do it. <laughs> you know, mm. Really different from each other. One of them is, uh well I don't know Pixie if you want to talk about this briefly or if you don't want to talk about this I should have asked you before no, so I apologize to put you on the spot but I am curious about how you've used the dark crystal in your in your high school art teaching classroom like oh. experience so because I know that you've probably introduced it to a pot like um a generation I have uh of kids that would have not probably been exposed to otherwise and you know with an interesting result so I'm like wondering if you can touch on that and and also, I don't. I don't want to end this episode without at least making a shout, some kind of mention. Like, can we just talk about how Agra sits down? <laughs> 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 like that is so amazing. Like, I don't know. It takes her so long to sit down, and she's just like, "Yep, that's right." Like, it is going to take me forty-five seconds. It kind of reminds me of my dog, actually, <laughs> Yukina. It takes her like five minutes because she's stiff in her hips, but she just—I love how she just like moves her all of her hips around and her booty, and she just like you know settles in, and it's just like this very 
primordial thing where she's just like, I am. Mm. He's not like trying to hide mm-hmm. it or be like, oh, you know, yeah. I'm having trouble. It's, it's just like, <laughs> I love that <laughs> I, so much. It makes me so happy every time I see it. I Authentic. love it. That. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, again, I do adore her. I'm, I'm totally going to watch this after we're done with this. Um, yeah. So as an art teacher, I do feel like it's my moral responsibility to introduce good art to my students. I am going to sound a little pretentious. I try not to be, but sometimes I am. And I was like, we're watching the Dark Crystal and here's my reflection sheet you're going to fill out. And it counts as a grade. <laughs> and so I like made them watch it. And I had them, I, I came up with questions, I think. It was a while ago and it was a crazy year, but I had, you know, it was just interesting having them experience it and respond to it. And um, I felt like I was doing them a service. It just felt like a public service. Like, <laughs> um, And there's been, there's always one or two kids who know about it. So like I have this one student who um, has amazing artwork and his work has been reminding me of Skeksis. And I said, the Dark Crystal. Oh, and he said, yeah, oh, all artists have to watch yeah. that. And I said, well my job is done with you. You already knew. So that's good. Um, but most kids don't. And then, um, I think in general they were weirded out, but like, that's what's supposed to happen. And they were curious. And honestly, my goal, I think one of the big things I say a lot that if it was like my, my, one of my philosophies is I want my students to be curious. I don't want them to be like, whatever, I'm not looking into that. It's like, well, just be curious about it. Like, well, ask me a question, you know, like, what do you think it is? And they asked, why do the Skeksis look like that? Um, you know, they asked about the Gelflings. I, you know, I, I wish I had, I have it somewhere, but I don't have it now, but there were some just really brilliant questions that, that, that came out. And, um, to me, when you have questions, it means you're awake. And what we keep saying is this movie is so deep and so in depth that one scene, one showing of that, I'm hoping that in a few years, they'll be like, oh, my weird pixie art teacher back in like 2022 showed us this weird movie. Let's watch it again. And they'll have already started that process, the simmering that we had as kids. And the, so I, what I love is that I probably started a conversation in them and that eventually they will revisit it like we did. And I think that um, if mm. I could do anything, it's to start the myth conversation because they're going to participate it in their own way and continue it on. So that's what I did, you know, and I'm probably going to do it. every year and i actually i think i even gave them extra credit if they watched the prequel if they would watch it they could get extra credit i don't remember if they did or not but yeah it was really cool to do it felt like i was shifting things energetically it's just how it felt i love that you were beginning the myth conversation yeah and um when you show something to kids more gets revealed because they're coming at it from a whole other perspective. So it stimulated me, you know, it was just like, Ooh, that's cool. That's cool that they saw that. I didn't even think of that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to say quickly that Brian Froud is a channeler. If you look into Brian Froud, um, he sees these things, all the creatures he makes, he's like, Oh, he talks about them. They're, they're around him. He talks with them. He visits them. So he brought down, in something very real. Mm. Um, yeah. Do either of you... I wanna, <clears throat> so at the end of the movie, I find myself really mesmerized by, the, by those light creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
<laughs> but like a part of me is also like I find them a little almost intimidating mm-hmm. like and beautiful like I'd much rather hang out with the podlings and like dance and play music and there's so much joy in that like earthy scene like I feel like I would dra- rather do that any day than like go to this like castle and hang out with even the light beings like <laughs> let alone you know um but I, I find myself looking at them almost like when you're looking at a it's like if somebody has like a biological child and you're kind of trying to like feel out like where's where where'd you get that feature from? like I'm almost trying to like suss out you know okay so what part of you is sex and what part of you is mystic and um I'm mm. I'm just really, I just find that just so interesting just that that how those two those two kinds of characters become one and that they're part of the same thing I'm just I'm like I'll, I think I'll always just be curious about about that and how that works and I feel like visually that last scene when they actually come together I'm just like I just find myself like staring at them looking for clues <laughs> and yeah. like even though like it's, you I know visually that. maybe I won't find it but I just I feel like I'm that's awesome I, yeah I have it's a good well, I have some question. things to say in response though because the first thing is how genius is it that they personified and like made made real like interpretations of dark and light sides of a person or like a being like they made visible something that we talk about metaphorically or like do you know what I mean like they made good and evil visual like this energy but second technically according to the lore they're aliens from another planet that come to that planet so they're from a totally different world so you kind of like honed in on it like I don't think we do know and then we also learn that they're exiles that they're not actually that great. They made a mistake and they got exiled and they ended up on this planet. And I think they were trying to do right, like to kind of like fix what they had done maybe or, but it ended up going wrong. So the pot, so podlings and are the indigenous? I think the podlings are the indigenous the and the gelflings too. I think the gelflings, because there's lots of different kinds of gelflings and there's podlings. I think there's probably different podlings too. And yeah, they are indigenous. Yeah. I agree with Vanessa that I'd rather hang out with a podling than a gelfling on most days, especially like the music and just the the joy, the the revelry of every night having. I love that parties. music. Yeah, they it reminds me a bit of of being in Ireland mm-hmm. a little bit and hobbits, um, nice. like that. The cultural influences might have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think maybe the the hierarchy of the Gelflings being these kind of like intellectual scholars and going too far into that removes you from your own um, earthly wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody has their part to play, too, also. Mm-hmm. And there are different mm-hmm. tribes of Gelflings um, that I liked more than other ones. And I liked the ones that were underground. There are Gelf- There's a um, kind of Gelfling that all were always underground all the time. And those are the ones that reminded me a lot of the podlings. They were the most close to the earth. So I remember the biological elements of that world. I don't remember them, but I remember going mm-hmm. like, oh, shit, the art department. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, what, I'm in the wrong job. I just kept like watching and being like, I'm supposed to be working there. Like, I don't know how I missed the call, but I'm supposed to be on that set. I could totally be a part of that and it would be fine. Um I do feel like kind of as we're, it feels like we're winding down, but maybe not quite yet because I feel like there's still maybe little tendrils of thoughts because there's so much to this conversation. But I do think that it's important to like point out that these myths are like medicine. And I think they have a mm-hmm. lot of um, useful tools in them. And so like 
recognizing that they're there for us and that there's people always making them with um, purposeful reasoning and also subconscious reasoning um, is just a really important thing to to just keep in mind as we journey through the world as it stands now. It's a really rough out there right now for a lot of different reasons. We've got we've got a lot of changes in the environment. You know, Rodeau's in New Zealand are getting unprecedented rain. Um, people are suffering. We have a lot of damage being done. A lot of like mental illness. There's just a lot going on, and the pandemic pulled this veil over our eyes for in lots of different ways. And I just think that even more than ever, we need these stories. And I think this is here for us all the time. And I think it's important. Yeah, this, it's yeah. been really, it's been really fun, <laughs> to, kind of geeking out with <laughs> <Yeah>. you both <laughs> about this. It's nice to get your perspectives and um, leave them together. And I, I think there's just the yeah, others. Some of these are, like you're saying, Rudo, like ongoing questions yeah. that there might not be an answer to, which is cool. And we can always maybe reach out to each other if we we're like, I had an insight because <laughs> I, yeah, and we can yeah. talk more about it. <laughs> Yeah, and to the dear listeners, you know, you know how to yeah. get a hold of us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think I'll fade into our outro if that's cool with you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, we're really grateful that you listened and hung out with us today. Um, we hope you enjoyed this exploration into the myth and magic that is always conjuring itself through us in our world, and we hope it inspires, comforts, energizes, and brings you hope. And um really thankful mm. to Vanessa for joining us on the Dreamcast. Yeah, thank And we will you. hear more from you. So we'll have Vanessa back for other reasons. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, stay tuned. We're going to have more surprises, more episodes coming on our regular bi-weekly schedule. And the music we use for our podcast entitled Whimsical Aliens was written and performed by Alejandro Bernard from Ithaca, New York. And the podcast is edited and produced by Bjorn. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening, dear listener.